is uh, stated in 1 Timothy chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul says, First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. That's an interesting motivation for prayer for your leadership. Pray that they, whatever, pray for them so that we may lead, so that, that, that we get the outcome apparently from their governance. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. If we can live a quiet and tranquil existence in peace, then we can do our job. We can be on mission. It's hard to do your job when you're being shut down from doing your job for whatever reason. But if we could just live in tranquility and peace, we could do our job for all men. God is desiring that all men would come to the knowledge of the truth for there is no one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time for this. I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm not lying. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. The Christian duty of prayer. The apostle Paul is exhorting Timothy to exhort those he's going to speak to in Ephesus to pray. Joel, can you follow me with the camera? Is that possible? You've got to wake up to people and wake up everybody. All right. So, so what happened? What happens in uh, Paul sending Timothy is there's a problem in Ephesus. It's called witchcraft. It's called sorcery. We've read about it in the book of, of Acts where they, they brought all their books in, their magic books, thousands of them to be burned. Well, you burn some books and that's good, but there's still the culture in which Ephesus exists. And the culture is, is a problem for the ministry of the gospel. And Paul is sending his man, Timothy, to go and equip the church in Ephesus, the believers in Ephesus, to be about the mission that God has for us. We've read in chapter one about the goal of our instruction or the, the desired end state is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. I have applied that for you in terms of believers and non-believers around us. How would the love that God wants to build in us, the fruit of the spirit is love, which expresses in joy, peace, patience, kindness, all the, all the fruit of the spirit is love. How can that be expressed toward a believer or toward an unbeliever in terms of a generic need? Love provides the need for God so loved the world he gave his son. And so if we're going to love the non-believer from a pure heart and from a clean conscience and a sincere faith, we're going to seek their eternal life. They need to make a choice about their relationship with their creator. And they don't know they need to make that choice and they don't know anything about it. How will they know unless someone sends a preacher? How will they believe unless someone sends a preacher? And so we need to concern ourselves in our love with discipleship by evangelism, with discipleship for believers by teaching them the word as we do, which is what we're about. Paul is definitely equipping Timothy for the mission in a difficult environment because there are problems. There are men teaching strange doctrines. And part of the doctrines that they're teaching is they're trying to use the Mosaic law, the, the oracles of the Old Testament scriptures, and the requirements of the Old Testament scriptures, they're trying to apply this in an inappropriate way 
to the Gentile believers in Ephesus, which is a problem Paul is always facing. So Paul has had this problem through all his epistles. The problem he has in, the, in Galatia, it's the problem of the Judaizers coming behind him and they have traction and effect. Remember, there's synagogues in every city. And so he's got this problem of the misappropriation of the Old Testament scriptures and the, the misapplication of the Mosaic law. And he is, he is now sharing that hardship with Timothy. Oh, thanks a lot, Paul. That was a hard thing you've been facing and uh, you've been run out of town many times. You're let down in a basket through the back window so you can jump over the fence and get out of town. Great. In prison for this thing. The Jews got him imprisoned. Um, thank you for sharing this burden with me. Well, this is the work. This is the mission. This is what we're doing. So he sends Timothy to Ephesus to deal with these false teachers. And he has this discourse, discourse in verses 8 through 11 of chapter 1 about the misappropriation and the right use of the law. And he says that the law is given for sinners. It was given to show us our sin. Um, and, uh, and so the, the sin is in verse 10 of chapter 1, contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. Now, Paul moves from the sins of men in chapter one. Did you remember this? I'm just reviewing. He moves from the sins of people and their need for the law to show sin so that we can see the need for savior. He moves from that and the false teaching of these men to himself as an example. Paul points to himself and says, hey, everybody, hey, 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 everybody look at me. Now, that sounds like a non-Pauline thing to do. You're not supposed to say, hey, hey, hey. Everybody look at me. And here's what he says when he says that. Just like in Philippians 3, everything you could say about me is rubbish except for Jesus. Here he says, I'm the worst sinner of all. And so that makes me a trophy of God's grace. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and persecutor and violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love, which are found in Christ Jesus. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The Christian confession to an unbelieving sinful world is, Hey, we're all in trouble. We're sinners. Not you people are sinners. We are sinners, but there's a difference. There are sinners who know Christ and sinners who don't. And that's the difference. That's really the difference. It's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not a sinner. He is the Savior. It's worthy of full acceptance to say that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. This is a pattern for our evangelism. It's a pattern for our evangelism to come in and say, have you ever lied? Yes. Have you ever stolen anything? Yes. Okay, well, you fall short of God's God's requirements. And maybe you don't see fully how, and certainly you don't see fully how far short of God you fall, but you can see you do fall short. And so you need a savior. Fine. Fine. Be careful as we communicate this to, to follow the apostle Paul's pattern. I'm a sinner too. We're sinners saved by grace. We're the, we're the beggars that tell the other beggars where to find bread. 
Yet for this reason, I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example, a type, hupotuposin, an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul is, he is inductively demonstrating disciple making to Timothy in the pointing to himself. He's saying, I have been made an example for those others who will see Christ. And so Timothy can't say that he persecuted the church. He, he has a really lousy testimony. He, was, he became a Christian as a young man when Paul first came through and his mother and grandmother ministered to him, right? Paul, Paul has, he was killing, trying to kill Christians. He was certifying the death of Stephen. Well, just a second. You can't say you're the foremost sinner, but you got plenty that Jesus Christ had to atone for on your account. And so notice the, the common thread with you and me and Paul. We're not apostles, but we have the mission. We're making disciples and we're not the worst sinner, but we're sinners. And so use the example that Paul uses when you communicate Jesus Christ. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And so he, he, he took a moment to, if, to, to equip Timothy for the mission of making disciples. And then in verses 18 through 20, which we saw last time we were together, this is the charge I'm entrusting to you, child Timothy. Let me refresh what we were talking about in verses three and four. This is the charge I'm entrusting to you, my child in the faith, according to the prophecies made beforehand concerning you, so that by these prophecies, you, you may wage the good war. You may fight the good fight, but it's a warfare language. Because we're at war and our job in the war is to go save people who are on the opposing side, deceived by their, by the enemy of God. So that you may wage the good war by having faith and a good conscience, which some after rejecting the faith and good conscience that you need to have so you can fight the objective standard of God's truth, the faith and a good conscience, what happens when it comes into our hearts and we become capable of biblical God-given discernment, which this truth and its use, faith and a good conscience, some after rejecting have suffered shipwreck concerning the faith. They've suffered shipwreck concerning the faith. My favorite description of a Christian who has backslidden and to the point that Paul's talking about here, they have become blasphemers. Have you ever known Christians that had a good profession of faith that then say things that can't be true about God? I have. That's what he's talking about. And these are the people you turn over to Satan in 1 Corinthians 5 and here in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Of whom are Humenios and Alexandros, remember that, the way to say these in, in Greek, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've given over to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Now, this is not a believer in Jesus Christ, gracious as he is, saying to unbelievers in the world, all y'all are turned over to Satan. He doesn't have to say that to them. They're already there. And it's the people that wake up and trust in Christ that get his attention, in my opinion. The sleeping woke crowd <laughs> in today's parlance the woke are really the sleeping. What'd you woke? You woke up to the fact that there's a political process. Is that what you mean? You woke up? <laughs> okay. Go back to sleep. No, but the, the people that Satan is receiving now were not in his dominion. 
but Paul has turned them over. Now, some, some say this is an argument for the loss of salvation, but that's not what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. You've got the world, that's unbelievers. You've got the church in Corinth, and then you've got the so-called or one-called brother. Third category, backslidden believer. Christian facing the sin unto death, possibly, likely administered by Satan, who is chomping at the bit like a lion looking for someone to devour, chomping at the bit to get hold of a Christian that God is going to correct. So this is, this is heavy stuff that Paul says. It's warfare. I think 1 Timothy is a treasure trove, like every scripture. It's a treasure trove of insight into how the world really is. And what I get, and what I pray that you get from reading with me in 1 Timothy is a, a step out of the, the news cycle. Some of you have wised up and stopped watching, but stepping out of the temporal circumstance and looking at the big picture, there's a war on and all those people in the electorate, all those people in the electorate that are getting it wrong and forfeiting by their voting and activism, forfeiting the freedoms that have been bought with the blood of our heroes and, and forefathers. All those people are the ministry. They're the, they're the mission. They're the target of the gospel. I didn't say if you vote the wrong way, it means you're an unbeliever. I'm saying there's generally a pretty solid correlation. The application here is that your enemy is the mission target. It's Corey Tinboom in the concentration camp representing Jesus Christ so that one of the guards becomes a Christian. It's Jesus on the cross where after he dies and there's an earthquake, one of the Romans looks up, the centurion says, this was the son of God. Your enemies are the mission and I, I, your enemy is the devil, but those that he's deceived, you have to start thinking this way. What, what this passage does and what chapter two will do and I, I'm trying to set it up for you. It flips the script of how we, we think. We, our head is down and we're looking at what we're doing. We're dealing with obstacles and these people are a problem and this and that. And the people are the mission. And it's generally the people that are opposed that are the mission. When Paul says pray for kings, he's in the Roman Empire under Nero. That's definitely the king. I, I, I'm 99% certain that the king in Paul's day that he's actually talking about the high king that all the vassals are under, like the Agrippas, the high king is, Her is, uh, is, is Caesar, Nero, Nero, uh, Lucius Domitius Ahenobarbus called Nero, the, one of the worst human kings in known human history. Pray for him. It doesn't say pray imprecatory prayers or imprecatory prayers where you are asking for God to remove him from his position. It says pray for him so that you can live a quiet and tranquil life, which is dignified and honorable before God. Well, I don't need to paraphrase. We've translated it. Let's do it. Verse one of chapter two. Therefore, I exert first of all, the first thing, the first priority, and he says it, proton Proton ponton, first of all. You thought that was an English phrase, first of all. It's a Greek phrase that we stole. The high priority for what I want to encourage you, parakaleo, you to do to encourage you, is I want to exhort that you make supplications, prayer, petitions, and thanksgivings on behalf of all men. 
He makes a list of things. And then he says, on behalf of kings and all those who are in offices of authority, you pray for them so that a tranquil and quiet life we may lead in all devoutness and dignity. Why do you pray for the kings? So that you can lead a tranquil and quiet life in all devoutness and dignity, which for this is good and acceptable before God, our Savior. Because why? Continue the thought. Paul is making a long, complicated thought that it all hangs together. You pray for them so that you can lead a tranquil life for this is good before God who doesn't want any. He desires all men to be saved and unto a knowledge of the truth to, be, to, to come. Now, here's my problem with certain strains of systematic theology that don't listen to the whole of the text. And we all struggle with this. Anytime you start to categorize something that is of eternal and infinite significance, you're going to fall short. I love the categories, but let's watch it. Who all men, pontos anthropus, that means all men. There's no other definition. There's no other meaning of that. And it doesn't mean women. Anthropos is the word for the humans called by the masculine because that's how God initiated the human race. We are all from Adam, including Eve. So we're all men in the sense that we're humans from Adam. So all men, he wants, thelo, the same verb that is related to the noun thelema, that we translate will, better translated desire or preference as it's used in the New Testament. God wants all men, so thani, to be saved. Whatever he means by saved here, he wants it for all men. I believe he means the mission that we're on of representing Jesus Christ and communicating who the Father is so that they can know God through the Son. I think it's the same thing as John 14, 6. No one comes to the Father except by me. That salvation is what he means in this context. Later in chapter 2, when he says women will be saved by childbirth, he's talking about significance He's talking about your life counting, that you will enjoy uh, the life that God has for you. He's not talking about going to heaven. Here, he's talking about coming to God. God is willing that all, God, let's see, let me read it. Who wants all men to be saved and unto an epignosis, epignosis, epignosco here, a, a, fully, a full spiritual knowledge of truth to come. He desires all men to be saved and to a knowledge of the truth to come. Now, we started with prayer for the kings. Well, for all men. And then we, we narrowed it down to the kings. And now we're back to all men. It's chiastic, if you will, in a way. Pray for all men. You end up with salvation of all men. In the middle, pray for the king so that we lead a tr quiet and tranquil life. What is he saying? He's saying that the political environment you live in is going to impact the opportunities you have to represent Jesus Christ to all men. And yes, we want the king to become a Christian. The great example of this in church history is kind of weak. The great Constantine, who is supposedly the first Christian Caesar. We're kind of like, not so much. But he was at least sympathetic and permissive and not... Uh, Diocletian or Decian in his persecution. He was uh, a, a promoter of something about the church. But that's an interesting history we're not going to get into. My point is, 
Well, let's draw, let's draw, let's draw nearer. In verse one, therefore, I exert first of all, I exhort first of all, the big priority believers is that we would pray. The Christian church that is not praying isn't. Beloved, pray, pray for all men. And this is the most important feature in my understanding of the scriptures in our evangelism. I am absolutely beholden to a little man who is a giant in church history named Lewis Berry Chafer, who after traveling for seven years with evangelists in the early part of the 20th century and all the Elmer Gantry techniques of lighting candles and walking aisles and pleading and crying at the altar and all the things that are not trusting in Christ. After seeing all these psychological techniques in the great tent meetings of his day, he was, he led the singing with the traveling evangelist. He was the singer Schaefer was, he wrote a little book called true evangelism. He had perspective and he had seen it done. And then he gone to the scriptures under the tutelage of CI Schofield. He said, you know, we should be praying for unbelievers more than we're talking to them. You should spend more time talking to God about unbelievers or sinners than you spend talking to sinners about God. You're not going to wrestle them in. God's going to make an arrangement. He's going to let you participate. And he's going to open a door to the ministry of the gospel. This is how the New Testament talks about it. See, but you're partnering with God. By God's design, you're partaking, participating in his work. It's awesome to contemplate that privilege. But we, we read, you and I, we read verse 1 and one through four. And we're like, we should be praying for the Kings. That's how this applies. We should be praying for the Kings to provide the environment of tranquility so that we can be on mission is the point of the passage. Therefore I exert first of all, that supplications. I looked that up a supplication in Paul. It's it, these are all words for talking to God. He uses a list of words. A supplication means like an urgent specific request. Like I have this need and it's right now. It's when the, when the governor says we need a state of emergency because it went down below 12 degrees for three days. And now we don't have any electricity. We need like urgent specific request. This is the thing. Some of us, uh, our prayers are mostly supplicational. When it comes up that we're in trouble or we need help or we're scared about something, we bring our petition to God and it's that urgent specific request. Now you're supposed to make those. You have them in your life. You have problems in your life in part because God wants you to connect to him and watch him work. And some of you moms and dads, what you need to be praying for your kids and watching for is God working in their lives. That's an urgent specific request right now for your children, whether you know it or not. It is for mine that they would actually connect to him and see his work in the development of their lives and their problems and their joys and their blessings and their challenges and their struggles, supplications, urgent, specific requests, prayers. This is dasis, the asis. This word means to pray, to talk to God. It's a summary stock word for prayer. I don't think he's, he's listing these in any particular order. At least today, I don't think that. Petitions are much like supplications. They're requests. It's when you ask for something. Petition today, the only asking is, would you please sign this? And so we don't know what this means. But when you make this, this old use of the English word petition, you're asking someone for something. So we label the kind of prayer where you ask God for something, a petition. 
Here's a challenge, beloved. There's 13 letters by Paul if he didn't write Hebrews, and most of us think he didn't. 13 letters by the Apostle Paul. Ask yourself, ask the Bible the question, just for fun sometime. I mean, this is a blast. After you've you've done every possible other thing you could do with your time, open your Bible. No, actually start with this. Open your Bible in the letters of Paul and read through and just, just skim it. You, you can read slow later. Skim through and look for where Paul makes requests and, and see what Paul asks for. You can do it in the Gospels when Jesus prays. What does Jesus pray for? What are Jesus' petitions? What are the apostles' petitions? It'll be very interesting what you come up with. I, I'll, I'll Spoiler alert. I mean, you can check my work on this. It's mission. It's all the Gospel. It's all the effectiveness of the work that God has us doing. My favorite one is 2 Corinthians or 2 Thessalonians 3. Pray for me that the gospel will go forward and be glorious. Pray for me that the gospel will go forward. That's not a prayer for Paul. Yeah, it is. It's all he wants. Prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings. Thanksgivings, well, that's where we Eucharistia. E-U-C-H-A-R-I-S-T. That's where we get Eucharist. He gave thanks, right? Eucharistius. He enjoins thanksgivings for all men, made, be, made on behalf of all men. So this is what he exhorts, that you pray for all people. Why would Paul say that, Timothy, when you get to Ephesus, you need to be in prayer for all people? Why does he do that? Because Tim, Timothy's on a mission, and all people are part of this disciple-making project. It's in context. That's what he's doing. Pray on behalf of all men. Verse 2, on behalf of kings and all those who are in offices of huperake, who are in offices of authority. Pray for them. Do you think you need to pray for the salvation of the government in Connecticut? The governing people in Connecticut? Do you, if you thought about the governors, the governor, the lieutenant governor, the state senate, state, state congress, all that stuff the judges, the police force. If you looked at everybody in government, the power to wield the sword in this state, do you think you would have, um, and it was all raptured, when we all had the rapture and everybody was in the state, like in an aggregate, how many people in that crew would be left if Jesus said, okay, all that are mine come up, we're gonna have the event in the clouds. How many people of the state, now don't anybody say, uh, anything silly out loud, but I'm just, it's a thought experiment. How many people in our government do you think are believers in Jesus Christ as their savior? Probably not as many as we would like to, to have since we're compassionate and we like our father in heaven are desiring that all will be saved. If we adopt God's attitude, we'll be like God toward Jonah and say, Hey, go tell them so that they, you can forestall their destruction. If we're like Jesus Christ, then we're rejoicing when sinners come to him. Unlike the Pharisees who are indignant because these unclean untouchables are coming to Jesus. But if you think about the people that are most likely to oppress you, you know, artificially inflate the electric bill here to force the people into considering solar. I mean, it's the most expensive electricity uh, that I know of unless California is more. And the reason it's so expensive is, is the taxes. Why do we pay triple for electricity? Because the government makes us. That's just an example. Those that oppress you, 
you need to flip the script. They are the objects of our compassion because they don't have the life. Am I saying that you need to, um, you need to spend a lot of time directly going to them and calling their offices and telling them about Jesus? I'm not suggesting that at all. If you call their offices, I have some other things I might recommend you say to them that would be of pressing need that they need to do in their governance. But what I'm trying to say is that we need to be in prayer for these people because they don't have eternal life. And that's really the bigger issue. Let's expand it to our federal government in that horrible sinking hole of Northern Virginia. I mean, morally, of course, morally, it's not physically sinking. It's morally declining of, of Washington, D.C. How many of these people are actually believers in Christ? Now, now you asked that question in 1952, you get a different answer. But you ask that question today, this is a different country. The electorate is different. It's represented differently. And I'm not talking about the headliners that are obviously unbelievers by their own professions. I'm talking about the people that skate in under the wire and they're like, yeah, we still kind of traditional the way we, we present ourselves. More than half the electorate, according to their own platform, cannot subscribe to what the text says about much. So what am I saying? These people are the objects of your compassion. You need to be praying for them. They are going to do whatever damage they do, and then they're going to face judgment. And it'll be fine. And God has it. And it's, but it's, it's horrible what is coming to those who don't have Jesus Christ. So we pray, pray on behalf of all men for kings because we have something we want out of them. God wants out of them. We pray for the kings so that, it's very explicit in the Greek, the Hina plus the subjunctive, so that Hameron, Kai, Ekusion, so that tranquil and quiet, that's what these words mean, so that a tranquil and quiet life, and he fronts it, he says the description of the life in front, this is what we're going for. Your eyes are not supposed to gravitate toward the king, they're supposed to gravitate toward the tranquil and quiet so that a tranquil and quiet life we may lead in all devoutness and dignity. In my humble opinion, as a student of the scriptures and of our history, I believe this was in the minds of the framers of our government. Not racism, but that we would lead a tranquil and quiet life, that there would be peace and that there would be maximum freedom for people to manage their resources and provide for their families. That's the project. That's what we were. This is what we want. Now, you don't have to agree with me on the history, but we do need to agree on what it says here, that this is why we pray. We're praying for these kings, for the, for the people in authority, because they have a job to do, and there is a desired outcome. And this is interesting. The desired outcome is a tranquil and quiet life. They're supposed to lead and rule and govern so that we have this outcome. According to the Apostle Paul, that's their charge. It's also stated in Romans 13, often misunderstood, misquoted, whatever the government says you do. The government says, submit your children to the lash. You submit them to the lash. That's not what Romans 13 is saying. It's saying the government has a purpose and God gave that purpose and the government is responsible to God. I can't hold them responsible to God, but God will. But this is what you're asking God to provide through your leadership, tranquil and quiet life that you can lead in all devoutness and dignity. For this explanation, this is good and acceptable before God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So we pray for all men in the beginning of the discussion. 
God wants to save all men at the end of the discussion. That's your sandwich. And in the middle is what government does relative to the mission. And the last thing I want to say before we sing, despite the fact that I've gotten halfway through my notes, the last thing I want to say before we sing is think about the way your spiritual life in verses one through four, verses one and four, interface with your political participation in verses two and three. Government has a purpose. Bodily exercise has value, a little value, right? But it's no substitute. The, the civic duty is no replacement for your spiritual life or your actual mission. That's so important for us to get that. Whatever you do, I'm not saying you can't have your life's job in politics. You should. William Wilberforce is a consequence of a lot of good Bible teaching by John Newton. And that's why abolition in, in Great Britain, a wonderful example of a man on mission for God, using his, his uh, savvy and his skills in, in governance, but on mission. I'm not telling you not to be active. I'm saying that we're active with our eyes on the ball, on the mission. Your spiritual life has a calling and you can do it anywhere. Corey Tinboom can do it in the gulag or in the, um, sorry, in the, uh, the Nazi concentration camp. Uh, you can do it in, in the FEMA camp or whatever it is, whatever, whatever is in store for us with COVID-3 and everything. <laughs> yeah, COVID-3, it's a thing. Anyway, um, no, it, it's not here yet. It just seems like that's going to be the next thing because it comes after two. Um, so uh, what, what am I telling you? I'm telling you that your spiritual life is the focus of the Apostle Paul. And there is a government connection to that. And it in involves the playing field in which it happens. But it is praying to God. It is seeking God and his provision in this. Beloved, uh, this country is not going the way I would like for it to go. Because I see on the horizon a real crackdown on civil liberty. On individual liberties that we hold most dear, like freedom of expression. It's already, it's already at the door. Freedom of expression is done. In Canada, there are things you cannot read out of the text in public or you will be in, in jail. And Canada, by the way, is a testimony. Its existence as its own sovereign state is a testimony to the fact that the United States is not an aggressor state. Genghis, Genghis Khan would say, what, what is Canada? Why is it there? All the conquestors, Nebuchadnezzar, the great Assyrians, they would all look at Canada and say, you're really not doing all that you could, are you? In terms of amassing wealth and property and, and prestige for yourselves. That's, a, that's an aside. But this country's not going in a direction that we want to see it go because of the forfeiture of civil liberties in view of the new wokeness and avoiding offending people. The new, the new morality is don't offend anybody except Christians. Because under it, under the new morality is Satan, is the, is the deceiver who is at war with us and the battlefield is our thinking. What am I saying? Even though the country is not tending in the direction I would like to see it go, God is not at all stymied in his agenda. He, this is, we're on his agenda and we're contingent. And I don't want to be contingent. I don't feel like not knowing what's going to happen next and not knowing what to do or where to go. I, I don't like that, but that's where God has us living because he hadn't told us the details of how we get to the new heavens and new earth. We just know that's where we're going. Now, when you zoom out from your political circumstance, 
questions of the Second Amendment, these kinds of things. You zoom out on the loss of your civil liberties and, and uh, the, you know, the, the crackdown that is being it's not, it's not, it's not. I'm not saying it's happening. I'm saying the, the forces are marshalling to enable an overaggressive government to do this. When this happens, should it happen, you zoom out from your present situation and you look at your job. Our job is not American freedom. Our job within American freedom is the mission of the gospel. If you're pushing a broom in a FEMA camp or whatever it would be, your job isn't pushing the broom. Your, your job is representing Christ as you push the broom. It is sharing Jesus Christ with as many as you can. I don't know that I could have said what I'm saying 10 years ago from a biblical perspective. I probably could have. But I've watched this with you. I'm, I'm watching very closely whatever news outlets I can. It doesn't look good. Why do I point this out? Because first of all, you need to know what's going on. Second of all, you need to know that it's wrong. It is wrong to call evil good and good evil. The new morality is evil and you need to know that. But more importantly, you need to know what to do in the face of it. We're not, we're not in despair about the new morality. We are sharpening our skills of understanding God's word to share him with people that are deceived. And where God opens a door, we better be ready to run through it. That's what the work is about. That's why we're here. Please be challenged that your life has a purpose, whether it's in freedom that we've enjoyed in this country or whether in tyranny. We need to seek God's face about these people who surround us. Let's make a prayer. Let's make some petitions for all men. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sharing your character with us through the Apostle Paul who reminded us that you desire all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Father, we want to share that with you. We want you to build that love for our fellow man in us. Not our desire to affirm man in his sin, but to show man his need because of sin for a savior. Do not, Father, let us be self-righteous. Don't let us be sinful dupes of your enemy as Christians who think we're the good people because, because we go to church and because we have Christ. Father, we're the, we're, the, <laughs> we're the saved because your son took care of our sins at the cross. And we carry a message that any who trusts in him, all the sinners can have eternal life. Father, as you build this desire in us, remind us and prick us on to prayer. Stimulate us to pray for our governing officials so that we can lead a quiet and tranquil life, which is acceptable and pleasing to you because of your desire for our mission to go forward. And Father, we do with the Apostle Paul pray for you to open doors to this work of the gospel. Mr. Tongren used to teach us in his example to pray along with Jesus that you would open the harvest, that you would uh, send workers into the harvest. Father, you showed him open doors to gospel ministry. Show us all how we can be part of your work. Father, give us the words to say and the frame of mind to say it with the person in front of us that needs to hear. Father, build in us this compassion for these deceived people who might, just as they did to Jesus, gnash their teeth at us and hate us. 
Give us the sense and the attitude of your son who said, forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing. Just as Stephen said, don't count the sin against them. Father, let us be compassionate and careful to point all attention to your son, to what he did for us. What an honor and privilege it is, Father, to join with the Apostle Paul and Timothy, indeed with your son, the power of the same Holy Spirit who directed them to share Jesus Christ with these lost people. Father, we pray for our government. They'll do their job so that we could lead a quiet and tranquil life. We also pray for their salvation, for they desperately need you. All the more as they say they do not need you. God, we ask it in Jesus' name. We all said, Amen. amen.